the best of our knowledge explores topics on learning, education, and research. On today's episode, attitudes around higher education could be changing. A new poll shows that while Americans mostly see the value in a college degree, many don't think colleges are doing a great job in educating students. And we'll speak with a professor behind a new academic program focused on accessible instruction. I'm Lucas Willard, host of The Best of Our Knowledge. You're listening to The Best of Our Knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. What do Americans really think about higher ed? The Chronicle of Higher Education has released a national poll that sought to gauge public perception of a four-year degree. I spoke with the Chronicle senior reporter, Eric Kelderman, to learn more about the poll that shows while most Americans think a college education is worthwhile, fewer think colleges and universities are doing a good job of educating students. I mean, we've seen polls, you know, over in recent years, really since 2016 show um, what appears to be a very sharp divide or a a very sharp change in public opinion about higher education. We've seen the number of people who say it's, uh, you know, not good for the country uh, increase to more than half. And that that includes a a very large share of people who, you know, identify as as Democrats, people who might uh, typically be, you know, very strong advocates. What we wanted to do with this poll was see where, you know, is there, are there more than these numbers? Is it, is it not just black and white, you know, good and bad? And I think what we found was, was a very interesting distinction, right? Which is that people generally believe in sort of the economic, you know, the personal economic benefit of having a college degree, right? Um, But they don't necessarily think that colleges are doing a great job overall at some of their their key functions and they don't necessarily think that higher ed is 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 you know maybe a, 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 as great a, provides as great a benefit to society at large as to the individual now my first question is does any of that sentiment have to do with the cost of higher ed and the burden of student loans if someone enters college with the belief that they'll graduate and have a good paying job lined up and then they're burdened with hundreds of dollars a month in student loans, then I can see how that would sway their opinion to say, eh, I don't know how worth it that actually was. Actually, um, we still found pretty large majority of people who still have student debt that say that their college degree uh, was worth it. We, we didn't find a lot of pushback on that area. Um, You know, if you look at the numbers, right, um, eight in 10 graduates uh, said their, their, uh, or eight in 10 people said their college degree was worth it, right? And among those who have student loans, um, if they paid off their loan, obviously it's it's 86% of those said the college degree was worth it. Even with people who still have uh, some level of debt, uh, 64% said their college degree was worth it. So um, now if you, it's very different for people, obviously with uh, lower income levels, it's still almost two thirds. Um, people who didn't finish and, and have some debt, that's that's another question. I think those folks were, were far more skeptical about the value. But, but for people who finished their degree, and realize the economic benefit of having that degree, it was worth it, even even largely if they had debt. 
I wanted to ask about the political divide in this survey around the question of are colleges and universities doing a good job of educating students? That fall off is kind of surprising that 56% of Democrats rated colleges at good at educating students and only 36% of Republicans. I mean, 20 points is not a small number. No, no, not at all. Do you think that difference in opinion between political parties is just reflective of rhetoric from political candidates? I mean, we're in a presidential campaign season right now. So do you think people are more swayed by political messaging? Um, you know, we, we wanted to get at that question, sort of where were people getting their information from on, on higher education. But as it turns out in polling, it's really, really hard to do that. <laughs> and it's not really very reliable uh, according to the, to the people that we, we talked with. And so we punted on that question a little bit. Certainly, you know, the, there is a, a big divide. I would say that part of it is probably due to political rhetoric, right? We're hammered with um, political re- rhetoric from right-leaning or conservative politicians all the time about um, problems they see in higher education, that it's not rigorous enough, that it's focusing on um, diversity, equity, and inclusion issues too much and not getting at core issues, uh, you know, sort of the basics of education. I think there's some of that uh, that's reflected in this poll. Um, it might be that, um, you know, people think, believe more in their, people who believe more in sort of their individual accomplishment, right? Uh, the power of the individual as opposed to, say, the power of the institution. That might be reflected in some of this. Um, I'll be honest, we, there's been a lot of focus on the, on the political divide in higher ed, about higher education. I found that, frankly, to be one of the least interesting findings uh, in our survey results, that we, we found less, I thought, political polarization on some issues than I, than I would have expected. And let me let me speak to that point. For for instance, you know we've heard this sort of drumbeat of um, uh, from the right about sort of uh, colleges indoctrinating students, uh, right uh, on the left, uh, indoctrinating them on on sort of progressive issues. Um, and we don't have sort of hard numbers on this, but what we found was in the written comments, right, a, a very very tiny fraction of people who submitted written comments mentioned that at all as a, as a factor in why people shouldn't go to college. So even though we hear, you know, <clears throat> for instance, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida talking about this all the time, uh, we heard former Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos talk about this at CPAC a few years ago. Um, that was not an idea that came up in, in our polling uh, in a strong way. Now, the poll also shows a lot of support for alternatives to college educations, like trade schools, for instance. And that's something that's also, I think, is being spoken about more by elected leaders in recent years, is there's been a big focus in political rhetoric on supporting the trades. Yeah, absolutely. I think think there's there's certainly, uh, I don't want to say it's just from the right that are supporting the trades, right? We hear a lot of um, left-leaning politicians as well you sort of uh, praise the value of, say, a community college degree, right? Practical degrees in sort of maybe, a, you know, advanced manufacturing or, or some welding program, things like that. Welding was very popular a few years ago from, from politicians. Um, so I think it follows in that vein. But I do find that interesting that, that 
there is a strong correlation with sort of quality of life issues in, in the college degree, right? If you have a college degree, you tend to live longer, your health is better, you have better social connections, um, your income is, is generally better. Um, and, and so, and yet people, people, you know, think that uh, some of these other options are just as good. And in some ways, probably they are, but there is still a, a very strong correlation with, you know, quality of life and, and a post-secondary uh, credential. So, Eric, uh, where does this research take you next? What do you want to dig a little more into? Oh, you know, we've got a, a ton of stuff. Um, and I do think, we, you know, we're going to find places where uh, in, in data that we, that we are still, you know, probing. There's, I want to say there's like 400 pages of, of crosstabs for us to dig into. We, we pulled out some of the highlights uh, for our initial story. Um, so there's there's more to to dig into uh, on classroom instruction, for instance. We we did some polling on who who people should uh, rely on to dictate um, uh, you know curriculum in college, right? That's been a that's been a big discussion point uh, in politics lately. So we'll dig into things like that. Um, more on sort of the advice, you know, uh, whether people should go to college or whether they're considering college. Uh, in the future. Colleges are very concerned, as you probably know, about sort of enrollment figures and thinking about, you know, are people going to, you know, leave college in droves? There's a, there's a decline in high school graduates coming uh, in 2026. Uh, and colleges are thinking about, you know, is there is there more of a market for us to, to find students in adult workers, right? Uh, or adult, adult students, people who are working and have families, can they go back to college? A lot of people who have some college but no degree who haven't finished, um, and I think those those the poll results will be very uh, illuminating on on whether there is you know potential for institutions to uh, to tap into those populations. Thanks, Eric. Thank you so much for speaking with me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Lucas. I hope that was helpful. Eric Kelderman is a senior reporter with the Chronicle of Higher Education. listening to The Best of Our Knowledge, I'm Lucas Willard. SUNY Cobleskill, a public university in rural upstate New York, is introducing a new course and academic minor in accessible instruction. The goal is to allow students to develop their skills in delivering instruction to people with a range of neurological and physical motor challenges. The minor is open to all students and not just education majors, who are planning to pursue a career in an instructional or community service setting. To learn more, I spoke with Dr. Gail Wentworth, a professor of early childhood studies and dean of SUNY Cobleskill's School of Business and Liberal Arts and Sciences. In our community, there's a lot of need for people that want to be assistants or teachers or community volunteers to work with people of, uh, with disabilities, um, that have special needs, uh, mental health needs, neurodiverse children and adults. So what I decided to do, I took a sabbatical last semester and I educated myself further on children with autism predominantly. And I did an internship 
uh, which was awesome, at Springbrook Schools in Oneonta, New York. And I also took a graduate course. And I developed, through that, I developed a new course. It's called Differentiated Instruction. And coupled that with a new minor for bachelor's degree students at SUNY Cobleskill in accessible instruction. And the idea is to open this up to non-early childhood education majors because we want to draw people at this college who are studying different topics but will probably be giving workshops in the community. If, if you're a wildlife student and you're going to go to a county fair and part of your job is to educate the public on environmental conservation issues, you have to be prepared for anyone who might come to your program, anyone who might stop by to look at that falcon, to hear about the wetlands and the problems. Are you, I would like that student to understand that they want to prepare for any possibility of a human being that comes to that session that may not be able to access their activity they planned or their information they're saying because they can't hear or they are wheelchair bound and cannot get up and go pat the animal. Um, so I think it's applicable to a lot of a lot of things, especially at SUNY Coble Skill, which is highly experiential, based on internships, practicum, real world experiences. You are training students with how to connect to people in the real world. Say you graduate with a wildlife studies degree, and your example there, you go to a county fair, you have your booth. You have your, maybe someone is there with a, a display case and there's an animal and you have to communicate to uh, anybody of any ability who's able to come to this session. And this is a program that's going to give you the tools to go that much further, to actually apply what you're learning in these very experiential programs. Yes. I would like them to tour. I hope to do some field trips where we toured um, hiking trails that are designed for people with sensory issues or, or physical limitations and uh, playgrounds designed for children with differing abilities. Uh, and so all of that develops empathy for other people. And it gives you pause when you're planning something and gathering your materials for an event so you can be most effective and accommodate the most people you can. And every time you might learn something different. Gee, next time I'll bring this because someone couldn't do that. But I think it'll develop that mindset as well as skills and tools. We're going to make materials, make sensory board, make communication devices, uh, learn how to use software on a laptop that's augmentative assistive uh, communication. Um, and I'll let them borrow my laptops and that kind of stuff and go try it out in the field. Is there any uh, real-world examples that led you into the ideas of why you needed to develop this minor and this course? I've got lots of examples. My own, my own struggles. Um, some years ago, because I've been at this several decades, <laughs> some years ago, here's one example. I was uh, teaching in, in Europe, actually, at a United Nations school in Geneva, Switzerland. And it was a challenge enough because... 24 kids in my classroom all spoke different languages from different countries, and they were three, three and a half. I also had in that mix two children with autism. I had no experience with children with autism. And I 
struggled myself with trying to meet the needs of those children. And I took a short training on ABA uh, therapies, which I can't talk about because I'm not an expert, but it, it didn't help me too much because it was just one training. And I, and I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I'm a really, really good early childhood teacher, professor, administrator of that program, but I don't know what I'm doing. And I feel like I'm doing a disservice to these children in that family because I don't have this education. Looking back on it now, after my sabbatical last semester, I'm, well, I, I should have done this. I could have done this. I should have been more patient and understanding. Um, there are so many tools out there that they use at Springbrook School for children with neurodiverse issues that I, I learned just so much in one spring semester. And I thought, my students need to know this. There's a lot of information out there. And 20 years ago, I didn't know any of this. And now I've done it firsthand and I'm bringing it to these students. And it's, I believe it's applicable across age ranges and disciplines. It's working with human beings in an empathic, I guess that's the word, an empathic way to meet their needs as best you can. So you're introducing a new minor. What are the challenges in bringing that to students' attention who may already be enrolled in a program and they say, oh, well, you know, I don't know if I need that or I don't know how that would benefit me. How do you actually get the word out around campus? Um, what I'm doing is I am, I am uh, connecting with faculty, point faculty that teach certain classes that are part, part of the minor or who I, whom I think would their students would benefit. I'm chatting them up. I'm, you know, in, in a very positive way. I hope that doesn't sound like an insidious marketer or something like that. But, um, you know, I have, I have very good relationships with people across campus. I, I have friendly relationships with these professors in these other fields. So I would say, hey, Mark, I think your students might be interested in this. Can I come into your class and talk about it? And I've been welcomed in. So I'm setting up that kind of thing where I can come in and, and talk to them and tell them about it. I think it really has to be word of mouth rather than just sending an email link, hey, check this out. So it's, it's you know, talking and listening to them. And then, so I'm, I'm selling it. I'm selling it. I got to get the word out. And you're helping. <laughs> Dr. Gail Wentworth is Dean of SUNY Skills School of Business and Liberal Arts and Sciences and creator of the university's new Accessible Instruction Program. This is the best of our knowledge. I'm Lucas Willard. A new satellite high school in Schenectady, New York, is educating students differently. Students at Big Picture Schenectady will work to create their own individual learning plans. The best of our knowledge is Samantha Simmons visited Big Picture for the first day of school earlier this month. You go out to the community and you do an internship as freshmen. Schenectady City School District Superintendent Anibal Soler says choice empowers students. Kids chose to be here. So no one was like, 
you met a criteria and we sent you yeah. there. And that's what we've sometimes done in education where we've like said, hey, you didn't do well, you just you, you got to go. This was all choice. After starting as an art teacher in Western New York, Soler says he understands the importance of non-traditional learning. Not all kids, you know, function well, right, in a large environment. So some of our kids will do, will flourish here. And the hope is uh, this is the inaugural year, and every year we get better at it. And there'll be a story to be told here that will excite kids that want to come be a part of uh, Big Picture Schenectady. 72 students make up this year's class. They will work with teachers and peers to gain career skills and participate in hands-on learning opportunities while working toward a region's diploma. Julie Neugebauer teaches math. It is still math. We still have standards um, to meet, to teach, and um, the rigor is still going to be, um, you know, ninth grade algebra level. Um, and we're, I'm hopefully going to be able to find a way to make it so it's real world. Each morning, a class of 18 students will meet with their advisors, who are also their teachers. They'll remain linked for the duration of high school to work on interest-based projects and build a community. Ninth grader Jada Robinson is part of the inaugural class. I'm just looking forward to whatever this has to offer. Like, I'm, I'm new, I'm kind of nervous, I'm, <laughs> it's all new to me, so. Robinson says the program brings an appeal that traditional programs do not. I heard there's like a, like, volunteering going on, like, some days, like, you get to go out and volunteer or something like that. I, I wanted to see, like, what was that all about, because I kind of wanted to try career stuff. I really want to be a voice actor in the future, too, so, like, I want to be able to do that, have that part-time. It's my dream. Fellow ninth grader Josiah Ross says he has several priorities this school year. I'm not going to lie. I'm just waiting for the football games. I love the football <laughs> games. That's Big picture principal Sarah Horacek says her career has focused on alternative learning. She says she is looking forward to students' realization of their impact on the school's environment. It's really a time for students to make it what they want to be. So I'm really excited to see that come to fruition. Every advisory um, looks different and feels different, and it's based on what the students and the adult want and need, and they collaborate. School nurse Melissa Keene says Big Picture feels like home. I graduated from alternative ed education school, so coming back and being able to give back to the students that I used to be um, is very enlightening, and I'm hoping that I can give them a little bit more encouragement um, because I was where they were, and so there's a possibility for every student. All students can learn. They just learn differently. Reporting for the best of our knowledge, I'm Samantha Simmons. With the unfortunate reality of the threat of guns and violence in schools, districts across the country have looked to advancements in technology to provide security in the event of an emergency. Earlier this year in New York, Governor Kathy Hochul signed legislation aimed at boosting the inclusion of silent alarms in school safety plans. In August, AT&T and FirstNet introduced Safety Shield, a wearable panic button the size of an ID card that instantly alerts 911 and sounds a campus-wide silent alarm. The best of our knowledge is Jody Cowan spoke with Matt Walsh, Assistant Vice President in AT&T's Public Sector and FirstNet. So it's a lanyard device, works with uh, a solution that we call Safety Shield. It's a device that has a, a button, single button here on the front, 
that allows a school teacher, a bus driver, an administrator to push the button when there is an emergency and have that immediately routed over NextGen 911 to a 911 call center, right? They call them public safety answering points, but routes directly to that 911. So there's nobody in the middle of that and, and communicates immediately with a 911 caller that then results in quicker dispatch to those emergencies. You mentioned next generation 911. What is that and how does it work with Safety Shield? Taking what used to be when, you know, from when 911 launched, right, what used to be just voice communications to now allowing text messaging, you know, multimedia pictures. So this changes it 911 to where you can interact with a 911 uh, call taker kind of the same way that you would expect to interact with anybody else, right? And so it gives you that opportunity to to have a more meaningful discussion so that you can provide more meaningful content of what's going on, right? Whether that be a picture or you may not be in a situation where you could call, but you could send a text. In this case, when you push the button on the wearable device, it manifests or it, makes, it shows up on a call taker's screen as a text to 911. And so they immediately see who pushed the button, where that person is located in the building, provides a link to the application such that they can provide that to the first responders so they can see a map of the school where the where the button was pressed so that first responders, when they're coming to to the aid of whomever has pushed the button, can do that quicker and be be better informed when they show up on site. So during a situation with possibly multiple calls coming in, an emergency responder could differentiate between different callers in the same building in different locations. Absolutely. So it provides location of where they're at in the building. Another important aspect of it is the device uh, and the capabilities are not restricted to that of the building. So they could be outside the building for recess, right? Or they could be in a bus taking kids to and from home or going, say, for example, taking the football team to a, to a, to a game uh, off campus, right? And still being able to push that button, be able to provide that location, and what's key to that capability is FirstNet. And we talked a little bit about that in the beginning, but FirstNet being public safety's network, right? It's a relationship between AT&T and the federal government. It's, it's a partnership between those two entities where we're bringing forward and have brought forward a public safety network built specifically for and by public safety. So that same reliability, that same availability that we provide to first responders is the same reliability, the same capability that, that we bring to this device on that same network. Is there a way for community members or parents at these schools to tap into Safety Shields technology to also get information in real time about a potential emergency situation? Yeah, absolutely. So behind this panic button, behind the phone application is a, is a full featured uh, platform that allows schools to do all types of things once a button has been pressed, right? So they can lock the doors, they can stream video. They can choose if they so desire to send out notifications. What we tried to design when we put this out into the market is flexibility for how the school wants to implement it, because it is really quite different across the country and on how you'd like to see people interact. We just found the fundamentals to be quick response, reliable, and informed, right? And so we have that ability to deliver that. And then we give a lot of flexibility to the schools and how they want to implement we're really excited about seeing the adoption and the interest in using this to, to increase safety in schools. That's AT&T's Matt Walsh speaking with the best of our knowledge's Jody Cowan.
This has been The Best of Our Knowledge, episode 1722. The Best of Our Knowledge is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Thanks to associate producer Jody Cowan, the latest on all national productions programs is available via the Airwaves newsletter and our flagship station's website, wamc.org. Until next time, I'm Lucas Willard. Thank you.